Hi, everyone, and welcome again to another one of my Gaudi Mitzpah's podcasts and YouTube videos. And I'm very pleased that we finally have on the show today uh, Dr. Timothy Flanders, uh, who is the editor of 1 Peter 5. And we've been trying to get this interview scheduled for several months now. But uh, first things came up on my end, then things came up on his end. And all of a sudden we were, you know, months behind. So we're finally here doing this interview. And it's very timely because Timothy has out a new book, City of God, City of Man. And uh, it's full disclosure. Usually when I interview a guest about a book of theirs, I will have at least uh, already gotten the book and read big chunks of it before I do the interview. But because of this injury that I have suffered to my leg and abdomen, which is thankfully healing, uh, I have just been behind the eight ball, behind the curve. Those of you who follow my blog notice that there's been a bit, a bit less production lately. Painkillers uh, have made me a little bit groggy. So anyway, I'm a little bit disadvantaged. I, I'm embarrassed to say that I have not yet purchased uh, Timothy Flanders' book or uh, therefore read it, but I, uh, I have read reviews of it. Let's put it that way. And they give it good reviews. And so I'm very pleased to talk to it. Uh, and I get from the reviews that the essence of the book is that, uh, uh, we, we face today a grave crisis in the church, perhaps one of the gravest crises crises in the history of the church. Uh, it's both a cultural crisis and a cultural crisis that has bled into the church. This is also, a main theme in my own recent book published by Ignatius Press, uh, Confession of a Catholic Worker. And uh, Timothy Flanders puts forth the proposition that, you know, traditionalists and then communal resource month theologians like myself need to sort of join hands across the aisle in order to sort of make common cause uh, in the midst of this crisis. Am I, am I characterizing the essence of the book properly or, or do you want to, and, and if, even if I am, do you want to add to that? So, so turn, I'm going to turn it over to you now to, to give us the essence of your book, why you wrote it, why it's important, what's it saying, why we should give a darn and uh, why, why it's the greatest book that was ever written and everybody should read it. So let's go. Yes, of course. Well, first of all, full disclosure is that I am not a doctor. In fact, I do not have a PhD. Oh, that's right. I didn't I... even didn't even finish my master's degree because I had to make money uh, to provide for my wife and children. So I quit well, it's that. you but know perhaps be... it's a mistake easily made because you carry your erudition well. So there, there you go. Well, thank you very much. So this text was going to be my dissertation. That was the plan, but turns out it's just going to be a book. So. No dissertation, but here you here you go. Here's a book. So, yeah. So that hey, the, but wait a minute. Wait, wait, Timothy. Yes. Wait before you get it. Perhaps now uh, th that I have reached such heights of august splendor here at GaudiumSpace22.com, perhaps I now have the right to confer honorary doctorates. So you you you, you <laughs> we'll give you an honorary Gaudium and Spence 22 doctorate today. Wow, that? you are really reaching across the aisle to me. Who's, uh, you know, a rab, <laughs> well, you a rabid rad trad. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I don't know how rabid you. you are, but but anyway, <laughs> I keep interrupting you. Uh, once again, that's just further evidence. I'm kind of out of it these days, uh, but I am very pleased to have you as a guest and very pleased to talk about your book. So without yeah. interruption, without further ado, your book, sir. Sure. Well, the, essentially, yes, of course, we need to join hands across the aisle against the machinations of the enemies of Christ and the fallen angels and all sorts of things that are going on today in society. My book 
presents a synthesis of the spiritual history of culture, which is an attempt to synthesize St. Augustine into his greatest 20th century disciple in history, at least, is Christopher Dawson. And yeah. to provide a hypothesis about this spiritual history of culture, and in particular, the development of doctrine within that, uh, through the whole 2000 history, 2000 year history of the church, which contextualizes our current crisis, which provides a spiritual, cultural, theological justification behind that community on the one hand and trial on the other side. I and I view the 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 work of Vatican One and the work of Vatican Two as God bringing us towards this higher synthesis, which is ultimately a response to modernity and liberalism and all of her ugly daughters like feminism and Marxism. And so it is a a very broad history, but it is focused on presenting something, which is a new hypothesis about the current crisis that we face. So providing a, a 2000 year justification for that joining of hands and a hypothesis as, as to where we're going with that and, and where this is leading us. And this is, this is right in line with what you said in, in one of your recent essays, it was contained in uh Kwasniewski's volume about Vatican II 60 years later. And how you yeah. talk about Matthew Levering, Matthew Minard, and how they're they're working towards this very thing, which is this a theological synthesis between uh, sort of the neo-Thomists and then the resource of all. And then my book provides that that is the kernel. That's really the cultus. That's the the cultus, which is the epicenter of culture out of which flows culture. Um, but then it, it is also all of the other aspects of culture and society, family, economics, and all those things that flow therefrom. Oh, man, that is really something. And uh, based on the, the reviews that I've read and some of the blurbs, uh, people think that you were very, very successful at pulling that project off. I can't wait to get the book and read it now. So I, an immediate question always comes to me when when I uh, read books like this or hear about books like this that uh, you know are trying to address the cultural crisis and the ecclesial crisis of today by going back and doing a deep, deep, deep uh, sort of retrieval of the tradition in various ways. And I often want to ask the question, is this book a bit back engineered in the sense that did, does it begin with a fundamental insight that we face this horrific crisis today, which I want to talk about and unpack more. And then you, you beginning with the awareness of crisis, you then sort of back engineer well, how did we get to this crisis? How did we get here? So does that, I mean, in other words, I'm always looking for why an author felt so motivated to write a text. What is it that this author most really is animated by? And in, in, in my own case, in my own book, it began with awareness of crisis. And then I back engineered, well, how did we get here? And what are the remedies? So, I mean, so in other words, is the emphasis on the book more, uh, a kind of academic unpacking of the history of a kind of Augustinian, Dawsonian approach to things? Or is it really a combination of that sort of academic analysis with a, with a true sort of existential sort of stabbing at this crisis that we are in today? Yeah, I, I would say it is both of those things. Um, 
and just to answer your 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 main question is that for me personally this is this is really the fruit of 10 plus years of research in which, which yeah. brought me out of protestantism and then into various uh messianic jewish theories and then into eastern orthodoxy and then ultimately into roman catholicism so it's actually a a really an apologetic of for all the uh for roman catholicism above all yeah. those things which really synthesizes all of the the truth of all those things uh and then denies all their errors uh, so that's what motivated me personally that's not really uh explicit right. in the book um but it's it's part of it is so looking at looking at this through the lens of Augustine and Dawson and looking at looking at our current crisis and then yes looking at what are the what are the different uh things that led to that because uh, i think that one one problem is that people in the current crisis who fall into different camps um yeah. tend to ideologize history so they take history so for example and the most common one is you know from a trad perspective you say oh well Everything was fine and dandy before Vatican II and then Vatican II and then destroyed everything. And there, yeah. obviously there is a truth to that, but it's obviously it's ideologizing history. There's way more that goes on with that, way more things that are that need to be unpacked there. Um, there's roots, historical causes and roots that go back centuries and centuries. Um, there's the issue, very huge issues that are coming out in the 19th century ecclesiology and uh, uh, the the dominance of neo-Thomism, the 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 sort of no salvation outside Thomism atmosphere that was created. Anyways, there's all sorts of different yeah. things. So yes, the, so it's a, it's attempt to pull at all the strings and try to unpack and and unravel all these ideologies, the ideologies of history to say, well, there's actually so many different factors going on that we can't just put one factor. You know, people want to just put blame blame one thing or put a scapegoat in that and whatnot. But so that's one aspect. But the other aspect is looking at sort of this this the spirit of Christendom and the spirit of uh, doctrinal development, which is really the Holy Spirit. But observing how the Holy Spirit works in these different things, and it, it's what I call it, it was in my most recent lecture on the topic was um, this. The, the, it's the Greco-Roman Christendom, but that the that that, that the church has a, a a a Greco instinct, which is kind of like an instinct for something new, some new thing, as we as we yeah. read in the Book of Acts yeah. about how the Greeks have this right. sort of instinct towards philosophy and, and greater penetration of the truth, <clears throat> whereas the Roman instinct of the Greco-Roman is to always keep things the same. To it's extremely yeah. conservative, always maintaining that same fundamental thing, and this is this is the essence of doctrinal development, which is, as Saint Augustine says, beauty ever ancient, ever new. That's what doctrinal development is, sort of in a in a pithy saying, yeah. really, because it is new, but it's also ancient. It's the same but different, different but the same. And what we see is that we see in these different doctrinal con controversies. In my book, I, I identify these four Greco-Roman renewals. And and we sort of identify how doctoral development worked in these different renewals, because there's there is a pattern, I believe. Um, and we can see this pattern in our own day. We're sort of in this fourth Greco-Roman renewal. But what happens is there's sort of this Greek party who's following this Greek instinct, uh, which I call in the book the moderate party. They're moderate because they want to adopt something new in order to preserve what was handed down. 
So the right. conspicuous example is is we just celebrated Saint Athanasius, who who adopts a new term, homoousios, which is a really big innovation. It's applying a Greek philosophical terminology. Uh, it's applying applying these things that are not contained in the scripture. It's a total innovation, but it's doing so in order to preserve something. Now, opposed to that, then are these these strict the strict party, the Roman party, that is opposed to any innovation whatsoever. But but the key here is that both of these parties need each other because if if the party that wants innovation goes too far, then they become heretics. They're basically they're just you know so new right, that it's totally right. different. Whereas the strict party, if they go too far, then they become schismatics and Donatists and Tertullian and this sort of thing, where it's you know it's so conservative that uh, it it will completely. Uh, or even heretics, even heretics in their own right, because had Homo Uzios been rejected at Nicaea, you may have ended up with some version of soft Arianism <laughs> as the default position of the church. Yeah. So then I identify what are the cultural, what is the cultural meaning of Arianism? Because this is fascinating, because when we look at this and we take theology and how theology is incarnated into the cultists, because it, it ultimately is the cultus itself, the ritual, is in every culture, it is a manifestation of the metaphysical beauty of logos. And in our case, it is logos incarnate. And so the cultus then informs the entire culture. And so this is where we see the social aspect of Arianism. We see that the social aspect of Arianism is an attempt to dethrone Christ as king. It's an yes. attempt by the emperors to basically retain their status as the son of God and the high priest to control and maintain society as pagan and maintain their pagan morals. Because if Christ is not homoousios with the father, then Christ is not truly king and the emperor can kind of maintain his son of God status. And so we see that how heresy is all the different, these different forms are ultimately efforts and machinations of the evil one to try to uh, maintain the status quo of paganism. <clears throat> so that That's just the first Greco-Roman renewal. And we go through number two and number three and all these different things. And then ultimately this, this fourth that we're a part of, which I would date towards, um, I would date beginning, especially with the 19th century French patristic renewals, beginning with, uh, you know, Ming and all the, these, these new patristic sources, yeah. which is beginning. And also the, the biblical resources that are totally unprecedented. Um, in the midst of this counter-revolutionary period against liberalism. So, and we're just in this intense crisis period, this whole, since which I date to 1773, really, in, in terms of this uh, liberal outgrowth. Um, so, yeah, go ahead. Well, I would just, okay, let's, let's, uh, we've been talking now only for uh, about 15 minutes. <clears throat> so that's great. We've got the first Greco-Roman renewal. I like that very much. I like this light motif of, of uh, going through various iterations. I mean, a, a word that came to mind was creative fidelity, uh, that, that this is part of the development of doctrine, is you are both creative, yet you are faithful to, to what has been handed on. Um, and so there, there is that dynamic. I'm also, I was also reminded that even in living organisms, uh, you see it's so organic development over time, regardless of what one thinks, for example, of the biological theory of evolution, even most evolutionists would acknowledge 
that the tendency of nature over vast periods of time is to stay the same. I mean, that's the purpose of DNA replication is that you want to hand on these traits, these traits, these traits. And I mean, you see alligators have been the same for, you know, 65 million years and haven't really evolved that much. Maybe they got a little smaller or something, but in the midst of that, stasis in the midst of that conservation biological organisms do in fact once in a while mutate in beneficial ways and so you get these changes um and and that's the way things develop organically over time so i i think it's not only philosophically true it's and theologically true i think there's that there's a great grand almost cosmic truth embedded in this notion of creative fidelity of development through stasis over time uh with gradual gradual change. But anyway, we can come back to that. Let's let's go on then to talk about you you, you sort of have made alluded to the French Revolution. And uh, I know a lot of thinkers who posit, you know, obviously it's it's kind of a dangerous game to say it's at this point that modernity is born and not in any other point. And so we're not making that claim. But certainly 1773 uh which is, uh, you know, kind of before the, the main French Revolution, uh, but still both on the, uh, you know, in the Anglo world in the United States and later in the French, something is something is brewing here in the late 18th century uh, that creates the modern world. So maybe let, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the rise of the modern world and what you say about it in your book. Sure. Well, I, I there's a lot of aspects to the text which are, things that are dealt with that are not really emphasized elsewhere. And one of the things that um, I see is the the reason I have 1773 to me as the, the beginning of modernity is because that's the suppression of the Jesuits. Yeah. And the exactly. reason why, why is that? Why, why do I put it that way? I, I think because really the Jesuits are at the, are the front line of the counter reformation and it's, they are at the front line of uh, evangelizing the whole world and implementing the Council of Trent everywhere. And obviously there are other orders who are doing great things in many, many places. Um, but the suppression of the Jesuits allows for the liberal, it sort of opens the door for the liberal revolutions because it's after the Jesuits are suppressed that this, these various secular forces are able to seize the Jesuit libraries and the Jesuit educational institutions and begin to impose their public schooling and all sorts of things like that, which are really just uh, liberal methods of mass propaganda, which subsumes the family as the primary educator and makes the state the primary educator. And I view that as there's sort of this brewing effort to destroy the Jesuits for, for decades before that. And, I, and obviously the Jesuits had their own issues and these were just pretexts. They took these issues and they used them as pretext to suppress the Jesuits, obviously. But um, I, I view this as sort of this uh, beginning of, of the liberal revolution because it's sort of this ultimate, this first blow against the council of Trent. And I, and I would view, I would, I would view modernity as uh, the final push to wipe away Baroque civilization which was born out of the Council of Trent, uh, and bring about something totally different where the Protestant civilizations are no longer trying to vie to create a Protestant civilization. They've lost, basically. They, they realize that they lost that battle. Yeah. 
the Protestants didn't succeed in creating a counter-counter-reformation. They didn't succeed. They failed. So the fallen angels saw that they had to create something totally new. And the, the main thing that I define about modernity is that it is intrinsically anti-culture. And I, th I think this is critically important because many people today talk about, oh, our culture this, our culture that. <clears throat> but I say that it is intrinsically anti-culture. And what I mean by that is it is it suppresses the public cultus of society, which is totally unheard of. The Protestants had that before. The, the Anglicans had a public <laughs> cultus. It suppresses the fundamental uh, fulcrum of culture, which is parents, veneration of elders, and passing down the tradition because the Protestants had that too, but modernity flips everything on its head. And it says, we're going to have constant revolt against parents. So every new generation is, is revolting against the next, the prior generation. And that's the very essence. It's, it's liberalism. It's liberation yeah. from your yeah. parents, liberation from authority itself. And this is fundamentally anti-culture. It's, it's like matter and anti-matter there's culture and there's anti-culture. <laughs> So now we have the birth of something totally different because, as I said, the Protestant cultures, they had a, a, a diminished and fragmented Christian culture, but they still had what, what I call the four elements of culture from drawing on Christopher Dawson, which I have already mentioned a few of them, the, the cultists um, the, and the elders, for example. Um, so the, the Protestants had uh, a diminished form of culture, but modernity actually forms this new thing called anti-culture and anti-culture it, it, it's like poison in every single culture. You just put it in a culture and it destroys the culture eventually. Yeah. And, and this is what ultimately results in individual people becoming <laughs> automatons so that the government can just control you. Um, because culture is really that, that power of the people in, in a true sense of the word, um, which, which creates the culture. So I think that is the, 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 the that essence um <clears throat> is this anti-culture um which i i i, I see in 1773 but then with the different liberal re revolutions they're all just yeah. implementing the same thing and then marxism and feminism are just outgrowths of that exact same spirit of of anti-culture and, and revolt against culture itself yeah i mean that's i think that's spot on and i and i also think that uh a philosopher like Nietzsche is so important because he he is one of the very few <clears throat> sort of secular atheistic philosophers who uh, really did see quite clearly, quite perspicaciously what the full logical entailments of liberalism are. Uh, and he had the courage to sort of see that through. I have, you know, my uh, my friend from who used to work for Word on Fire, Robert Mixa, is, is big on uh Nietzsche in this regard, in understanding this revolution that is upon us. But also, the late great Italian philosopher Augusto del Noce uh, articulated a view of modernity very similar to what you just said, where modernity is characterized essentially by simply the, the rolling back of tradition, the rolling back of everything that's been received. It, therefore, it is essentially, modernity is essentially a transgressive reality uh, that parasitically, that it's a very parasitical reality, therefore, because it, it constantly needs some sort of limit against which to kick, uh, over which to transgress, uh, and, and which is why it is so toxic once it is into the veins 
of, of culture because it's essentially a culture destroying bacterium. That's its whole ideology. So all you're left, I like what you said, uh, all you're left with is simply the kind of automaton uh, in the name of the freedom of the individual, we're going to liberate you from all of these constraints given to you by cult and family and culture and so on. We're going to liberate you from all that. And then you're going to be reduced to absolutely nothing. And now we're going to control you. Uh, and we're going to control you now through big tech and uh, COVID pandemics and, and whatever. And I'm not saying that COVID was invented by the government, but I'm saying they oh, there, there we got a strike on YouTube right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we did. We did. I, I don't want to get banned from YouTube. I, I'm, actually, I don't. But I'm, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. All I'm saying is governments these days never miss an opportunity. There's not a crisis that goes to waste yes. as an opportunity to extend the reach of uh, government. And I don't want to get off topic. I want to get back to your book. But <clears throat> I'll just say in this regard, because it supports your claim about the automaton that we've become. I never dreamed in a million years in 2020 that the governor of the state of Pennsylvania, where I live, had the power and the authority with the stroke of a pen to close everything. And I mean everything, churches, schools, businesses, uh, liquor stores. I mean, except for grocery stores and maybe pharmacies. He had the, I didn't realize all he had to do was to declare a health emergency or the legislature just had to declare a health emergency. And all of a sudden the government has these pluripotent powers to do whatever the heck he darn well felt like. And so it just does seem to me that one of the latent tendencies in modernity, one of the crises we face, is that the only limiting principle on government is given to us by government. D.C. Schindler makes this point in his book, The Politics of the Real, that even in the area of religious freedom, religious freedom is a domain carved out for us quite graciously by our governmental overlords. And, it, but it, and, and, and thus the principle of self-limitation of government is no principle of self-limitation at all. And the very act of thus limiting itself, the government is asserting a quite expansive power. It's quite expansively saying, and we are the ones that decide what our limits are, not you. Whereas you, following Christopher Dawson, all right. And this is why I love that you follow Christopher Dawson. The authority bubbles up from below through the natural pre-state sort of givens like family, like God, like church, like these mediating institutions, like cult and cultus, which is why the liturgical debates are very important, uh, which is why, you know, Peter Kwasniewski is not incorrect to draw our attention uh, to the importance. Of, anyway, I'm kind of rambling all over the place. Do you have any reactions to all my ramblings that I just sort of tossed out there? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's what this is what Cardinal Ratzker said. He said that the liturgy cannot become where the community creates itself because then right. it completely negates the whole purpose of what a cultist is because the cultist came before my grandparents existed and they pass it down to me. And that's what creates our whole community and pre pre presents itself to us because it's a participation in this, uh, the, the, the cultist itself, the, the manifestation of the beauty of logos in sound and sight. And that's what it is passed down to us. Uh, so we cannot every, there was actually a, um, in, uh, I can't remember if it was in Comme la Poivre, but the, the original, document in 1969 that was came out by concilium comme la poivre which was uh the translation principles uh when it was first translation the, the novus ordo 
Uh, I can't remember if this is in that document or just said by them, but what they wanted to do was they wanted to have every new generation translate a new vernacular mass. So it would constantly be relevant, but that <laughs> negates, I mean, that's, that's the very, they really did want every new uh, community to invent itself. Basically um, there's this great desire to make the liturgy relevant to modern man by making it more pedestrian and less uh sacred and more profane in in the sense of uh everyday life it, it needs to be in the everyday life um and th there is a truth to that in the sense that everything needs to be sacralized but if you don't have the initial cultus in place passed down you don't have culture itself then the the next generation just really does invent itself and then we have ugly churches where yeah. People are trying to invent themselves. They're trying to invent their own monuments instead of preserving what came before and then creating something new on that foundation. Now we have th that's I mean, this is what we have. But like, um, you know, when, when you use the, the framework of culture provided to us by Christopher Dawson, the framework of culture uh, where there's there's cultists and there's tradition, which is passed down, which is just the, the greater explanation of what cultus is. And you have the elders, the, the parents and the various elder offices. And then you have piety, where the next generation has piety towards what was come before. Um, you see what happened in this crisis that we faced ourselves in, in Roman Catholicism in, in Western Europe and the Americas, is we had a generational break in this generational passing down. There's There's been this intense war against this whole process by the anti-culture of liberalism and her ugly daughters, feminism and Marxism. But we finally had a generation that kind of bought into that, both clerics and lay people who wanted to break. They wanted to break with that whole transition process and create themselves anew. Like the, the, uh, the, what I, what I say, the, the suburban right Ash Wednesday song, uh, what is it? Offering of Ashens. We create ourselves anew was one of the. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so they did want to create themselves anew. And now we have this generational break because now uh, people of, of various generations are no longer connected with this sort of isolated generation. They isolated themselves because they wanted to create themselves anew. And so now we, we do have this. I, I mean, one of the greatest tra tragedies that I mentioned in my book. Uh, this this greatness of Karol Wojtyla in fighting the communists in Poland uh, in in Nova Hata, that the utopian dystopian communist city that yeah, they created yeah. is is such a glorious history for for Karol Wojtyla. But then they end up creating this ugly church in Nova Hata. It's 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 a great tragedy because that church is is a great monument to this awesome struggle of Karol Wojtyla. But unfortunately, the, this church is it's very isolated in terms of its it's well it seems to follow power. the sort of it does seem to follow right the sort of brutalist tradition of yes of bare concrete and all that and i don't know to what extent Voitiwa was an advocate of of architectural brutalism or not i don't, I don't but, really know yeah but i i agree with you i remember seeing pictures of it and thinking dear lord in heaven that's an ugly church um but let's stay on liturgy for a second because what's what's fascinating to me is it's a sort of case study and everything that sort of is, is kind of gone wrong in so many ways. Um, one of the things that gets neglected, I think, is the extent to which uh, the concept of liturgy as something that's essentially inherited 
and it can be reformed. It can develop. Yeah, yeah. I believe the old liturgy should have been reformed and developed a little bit, tweaked a little bit, so on. Fine, fine. Uh, but it it essentially has to be still something received. There's a dem- there's a democratizing element to that because it is something common to all that we all receive, and therefore, in a sense, transcends factions, transcends so on. But what you get then with the Novus Ordo, and I have no huge issues with the Novus Ordo, unlike uh, Dr. K, uh, nevertheless, the bigger problem that I have with it is that it's a pure invention, uh, that, it, that, it, that really does seem to have been the product of a few elites. All right, I don't know how many Catholics are around in the world around 1970, maybe about 1 billion, and yet for those 1 billion Catholics who are worshiping in this received way that sustained the cultus, you, you get a new liturgy, uh, very contrived, uh, that was, was probably produced by about 30, 40, you know, elite theologians in Rome or something without any consultation and foisted on the whole church. And, and that reminds me, too, then, you know, when you talk about, oh, we need, uh, we need each parish to sort of develop its own liturgy and its own translation or each diocese or whatever. Well, well let's remember what you're essentially saying there. What you're essentially saying is we're going to turn management of the liturgy over to about 10 people. And those 10 people are going to be trained at some liturgy workshop run by Sister Skippy Toes. And, and you know, there's going to be a cactus in the water font before long. And, and you know, yeah, and maladroit octogenarians in diaphanous dresses with streamers doing liturgical dance that everyone's embarrassed by, nobody wants, but the 10 people that run things decided for all of us that this is the this is the garbage that we're going to get. I know I'm on a bit of a rant, but th- that's, I think your, your insight here, following Dawson, following Augustine, following others, is so vitally important to understand that the faith is something received and passed on, passed on creatively, but faithfully. And what we're getting instead is this revolution of the few over the many. That that's my take on. Yes, I, I I mean I wholeheartedly agree with what you're saying. Um, there was a this is what this is what I mean by unpacking the ideological history, is that there was before there was a spirit of Vatican II, there was a false spirit of Vatican One. This is one of the chapters in my book. Yes, and this is where there is a there is an excessive ultramontanism or what I would call hyper uber ultramontanism and clericalism which begins in various ways for like Pius the ninth, for example, or Leo the 13th and Pius the 10th begin to create a very clericalist church. And now to be fair, the lay the lay order was already destroying itself because the lay order was, was being um, you know, doing the liberal revolutions. So the lay order was breaking with the clergy already. The clergy were breaking from the laity and by the time we get, and we have precedence with Pius X, but by the time we get to the Novus Ordo, we have this utter disconnect between the way that the laity are worshiping and passing down their faith and their piety, and the way that uh, a few of the clergy want all the laity to worship. And combined with all of these different forces and excesses in the context of a constant revolution over and over, and after a you know worldwide bloodbath which destroys civilization all over the place uh we have this imposition first under Pius XII but then under Paul VI of a 
instead of, I mean, if, if they wanted to introduce some new forms into liturgy, why not make it optional? Why not say, well, we, we, we rediscovered this sacramentary, which has all these prayers, which we think are great. Yeah. Well, at the cathedral, we'll have a five, you know, have, we'll have a 3 p.m. Uh, Gelasian sacrament or whatever mass with with X, Y, Z things that we're adding on. And, and the laity can go to that if they if they feel uh, right. You know, they fed by that or, or you know, that's they're edified or what they're experiencing God. Um, but it, it's in utter it's an utter disregard for the the cultural transmission that's already happening with the laity passing down their faith and their piety. Um, for example, like the Good Friday traditions of the uh, the seven last words of Christ or visiting the, the the different altars, these various pieties or these various uh, lay lay led processions in, in the, the streets, all sorts of lay piety. These things are attacked ultimately by a liturgical reform which does not allow those things anymore and says right. you have to only do it this way because that's what's good for you and it's ultimately it's kind of taking on a a I, unfortunately i must say sort of a marxist style governmental overreach we're gonna force this on you because it's good for you you're gonna like it trust us and uh it, it would again it would be one thing if it was optional Let's okay. Let's when Pius the Twelfth promulgated his uh, Psalter as an option. That's great wisdom. It, it was completely uh, rejected. No, nobody yeah. went for it. It was a it was an utter failure. Yeah. yeah. And so Pius the Twelfth didn't, in his wisdom, did not impose that on nobody. No pope since have imposed that on the church, except you know we do have the new liturgy of the hours. But um, creating an optional thing, which seen if it were that's sort of a a true. I, I mean, I would I would consider that to be at least one factor in the liturgical form, which is necessary. If we're going to reintroduce something which may have, have value. Okay. That's in theory, that's okay. But we can't upset that cultural transmission. We have to organically, organically integrate that into the cultural transmission. And if it gets passed on to the next generation, that's evidence that there may be something there. There may be some value yeah. there for the, yeah. the cultural going culture going forward. I think that I think that's all true, and and uh, a, a very astute analysis of where we are. I'm thinking. I mean, this attack on popular piety uh, is still going on today. I mean, I was just uh, a couple weeks ago, I guess, I was reading the article, uh, you know, about the Eucharistic pilgrimages, and uh, one of those pilgrimages, you know, in, in light of this is the year of the Eucharist revival and stuff. One of those wanted to go through the Archdiocese of Chicago and the pilgrimages involved, you know, the Blessed Sacrament being in a monstrous under, under a canopy, you know, like a Corpus Christi procession. And, and Cardinal Supich forbid it. He did not want the Eucharist in a monstrance being paraded around Chicago. It had to be they could go on pilgrimage, but it had to be in a ciborium. It had to be concealed and reserved. It couldn't be in the monstrance. And the reason that his spokesperson gave was the usual bogus recrudescence of 1970s BS about, well, the Eucharist is about fellowship and in receiving Christ there at the Mass, and we don't want Eucharistic adoration piety to eclipse that and be us. What nonsense. What absolute sociological and psychological nonsense. Popular Eucharistic piety increases our devotion to the Mass. Incre all the statistics show this. Where there is a vibrant Eucharistic adoration community, there is a vibrant Eucharistic communion period and community period. But it only goes to show what I'm what I'm I want to come back to then, how political this has become. You mentioned before, right? 
the, the, the politics of this. And I want to go back to Augusto Del Noche again. Del Noche said that the essence uh, and you keep bringing up the word Marxist, which I think is perfect, because Del Noche says the essence of totalitarianism is when you gut culture of its culture and you replace you subsume it to the dictates of politics. So when culture becomes absolutely subservient to the political domain, that's when culture is lost and you're essentially in a totalitarian system of some kind. Even if it's not a police state or an autocratic single ruler state, you are in a kind of totalitarian state. And my point would be that we are seeing a kind of creeping totalitarianism in, in the Catholic Church, precisely in and through synodality, because synodality is an attempt once again to simply co-opt the culture of, of Catholicism and to have imposed upon it instead by a few liberal ideological elites, this theology from the 1970s that nobody actually believed in uh, and didn't gain any traction, but now is being attempted. I know I'm really putting a mouthful in, into, <laughs> into your thesis here, well, and you are free to agree or disagree, but, what, but I, I think this is what's at stake here. What do you think? Well, I mean, absolutely. I completely agree. And, and, and my book, my book asserts that going back to the very beginning of this whole conversation is that the, the, the sort of the Greek party, the moderate party, um, <clears throat> and, and then the, uh, the Roman party, the strict party of Christendom, these two parties that form in a crisis situation, or in the case of the second Greco-Roman renewal in a, in a, even in a peacetime. Um, but these different, these different forces that form um, there was first the, what a sort of a, Ro the Roman strict council, which was Vatican one, where the, even the moderates were alienated. Uh, Cardinal Newman called the, the ultramontanes at the council, the tyrant majority. And e so even these sort of moderate voices were, were isolated and what happened was there was a breakdown of this this creative fidelity, this true true dynamic yeah. synthesis between these two parties. So that at Vatican II, and things things happen obviously like the 1940s. There's new developments, obviously that, that dialogue that breaks down. But then at Vatican II, there's this sort of open animosity that comes, it bubbles out of the surface. So at Vatican II, the the strict party to have to has to turn on the defensive because the strict party. Um, with exceptions, of course, has yeah. sort of persecuted the moderate party for decades. And so now the moderate party joins forces to a degree with the liberal party. Now, to a degree, they didn't they didn't know exactly what they were getting themselves into. But to a degree, they did. Even before yeah. the council in 1960, Joseph Ratzinger is condemning Hans Kuhn right before the council. Um, but we have this sort of overall with what what. Um, Wiltgen called the European Alliance at Vatican II, which is sort of this loose, the loose conglomeration between what would become known as Communio and what would become known as Concilium. But there's yeah. sort of a loose, loose alliance between these two forces, even though they're totally different. They're completely diametrically opposed from, to each other. They have sort of super superficial similarities, but they end up uniting to some degree against the strict um, Curia party. And because of this, ultimately, because of this, the 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 heretic heretical party be, begins to triumph during the council and after the council. And this this force that was unleashed, not really by Vatican II per se, but 
by the situation where this these forces were breaking down, which had already begun back in Vatican One and before, um, we're finally sort of reaping the fruit of that under this pontificate with the synod on synodality, where these forces, as you say, the octogenarian 1970s hippies are finally sort of having their day. <laughs> yeah, because uh, Paul the Sixth sort of sort of let them go a bit, even though he was he would li pay lift service against them, you know. Uh, John Paul II was obviously opposed to them, uh, Benedict even more so. And then Pope Francis has taken off, taken out of all those people. The Holy Father has, uh, you know, taken out, taken away those institutional power structures that were developed under John Paul II. Um, and now these people are having their power once again. And I, I would yeah, say, are. I assert that ultimately this is the result of this breakdown between these two Orthodox parties that should be synthesizing together against the heretics. I think that's uh, a very astute uh, sort of thumbnail sketch of what was going on at Vatican II and beyond. Um, in, you know, in defense of the kind of communio camp, De Lubeck, you're, you're right, there was there was cooperation. I actually believe, if I'm not mistaken, that De Lubach was for a time a part of concilium. Uh, and it was only, you know, it didn't take long for him to see the handwriting on the wall. And he and he left and started Comunio with Ratzinger and Balthazar uh, and, and a few others. But th the fact is, I think the Comunio folks never, even though they knew there were problems in the theology of people like Kung and Skilibex, I, I don't think they thought in a million years that the ecclesiastical edifice of the church, her authority, her magisterium, would allow it to spin out of control as it did. I, I, I think that so many of them just thought, well, the Pope will put a stop to this, or the Pope will put a stop to that, or our bishops will certainly speak up and won't let Skillebex's views win the day. And then they all wake up, and it's 1967, and you know the Dutch have lost their minds, and the French have lost their minds, and, you know, and, and all of a sudden the church is spinning out of control. And so, yeah, all of a sudden, the barn door is already open. The horses are out and you've got Ratzinger and Wojtyla and De Lubach and even Mary Tannen people trying to shut the stupid barn door. It's too late. The horses are out. Uh, and, and so it's, it's a real problem. And, and, and so I agree with you. There is now a need for that old curial party, as you call it, you know, like Matthew Minard, Matt Levering, guys like this are trying to sort of retrieve some of that neo-scholastic stuff. And that uh, now represented more by a kind of resurgent Thomistic school by people like Feingold and, and Father Thomas Joseph White and, and scholars like this. But we really do need, I, I think, to make common cause against this resurgence of, of absolute silliness. You know, it's interesting to go back to your not to dominate the conversation, but this is all just so fascinating. Go back to your, your, your phase one of the Greco-Roman thing. I would I would say to push your analogy even further, I would say, for example, the the, the Roman party the, the, would have been like the curial guys, the neo-scholastics. True. And the the good Greek party, the, the Greek party that would be the modern equivalent of those who embraced homoousios would have been a De Lubach or a Ratzinger or, or, or somebody like that. OK, but then you get I think then you mentioned before the emperor and those aligned with the emperor. Who wanted, uh, who wanted Arianism to win the day for largely political reasons in order to marginalize the absolute singularity that is Christ, I would see that as actually the, the liberals after the council, who I think were more interested in certain political ends 
than they were in strictly ecclesiological or Christological aims. Uh, Kung, in particular, was very open about the fact that his aim was a kind of world religions Catholicism that was then going to be part of this new religion of man that would be part of this big solidarity of a movement towards a one world, you know, solidarity of humanism and so forth. Uh, and I, I see that as a central reduction of the gospel to political to political ends, much like the emperor. Let's marginalize Christ and make him one savior figure among many, so we can essentially demote Catholicism and create this witch's brew of religions uh, in line with the United. And now I really do sound like a tinfoil hat conspiracy nut. Uh, but anyway, what do you, what do you think of of me tying those two things together? Yeah, absolutely. There's really the um, what I view as. What, what I do in the book is I, I present the ancient Roman gods as just being sort of reincarnated in, in every new crisis. Um, yeah. So we have the Roman goddess of Libertas, which is liberty, which was established after the overthrow of Tarquin the Proud and the, so the, 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 the kingdom of Rome to the Republic of Rome. <clears throat> On the other hand, we also have the Dionysian Liber, which is sort of the the lust, the fornication, the murder, the the letting forth of everything, and we see how there are these different uh, manifestations of these same sort of spiritual forces, which I would attribute to the fallen angels in various periods, which are ultimately seeking. The fallen angels are seeking to find men of power or politics and cut a deal with them and say this whole world I will give you if you bow down and worship me so that they then construct new idols so that we have just as in the ancient world, we have the, the real goddess of Libertas Libertas. Now we have in the American empire, we have literally an idol modeled directly off of Libertas in New York city called the statue of Liberty. And yeah. it's not a true Christian liberty. It's a liberalism liberty. It's a license is what that is. Yeah. Uh, and it's an idol. Uh, and, and ultimately, the, the powers of this world are seeking to erect idols so that the elites can have their power and the demons can have their worship. And so all the people can worship these idols. So during, during Vatican II, it's just, I mean, we have... The, the two largest empires of the day, the American Empire and the Soviet Empire, are both attempting to erect their idols, which will give cultists to the false gods, the demons. And these liberal forces that you mentioned are trying to serve them. They're trying to serve serve the idols because they're just embarrassed to be Catholic. They're, they're feeling so <laughs> yeah. inferior yeah. to all these different because they've 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 drunk in all the various propagandas about all sorts of different scientism and et cetera. And you see this in the, in the, in Vatican too, you have bishops getting up and saying, Oh, well, we should allow contraception because you know, that we don't, you know, we don't want another Galileo case. We don't, we're, it's too, uh, which is just a, a chalked up myth, myth about that whole thing. Um, propagandized by the Anglican, Anglican empire. <clears throat> yeah. But we have essentially these new idols. And I, I think one of the one of the things that I bring out in the book a lot is the idol of the love of money, which is which is the new insight into idolatry, which is given in the New Testament, 
Whereas before in the Old Testament, we have all sorts of idols. But in the New Testament, we say that the love of money is an idol. And we see it. what seems to, it suggests based on this, that our Lord's cleansing of the temple was a cleansing of idols and the idol of money, the idol of yes. the love of money. And, and yes. then we see in the history of Christendom how the love of money as an idol seeks to poison Christendom. And in particular, uh, one of the histories that I, I bring out that's really not really brought out elsewhere is the curse of ham ideology, which is this heresy, which is used to promote racial slavery first by the Muslims in their trans-Saharan slave trade. And then later the, the Christians succumb to the love of money and they begin the transatlantic slave trade. And this is just a poison. It's a poison of the love of money and subordinating and destroying human families for the sake of this love of money. And then at Vatican II, we see, especially with the American empire, we have the love of money, the promotion, the worldwide promotion of the love of money through various ideologies that are, are very subtle. But at the same time, the Soviet empire is the same thing. They're, they're also, they have the love of money because their whole ideology is based on power. If you don't have power, if you're poor, you're nothing. You have to, uh, you know, create the, this mass movement of violence and revolution because you don't have money. It's still the love of money in a different way from the a different coin. But I, yeah, yeah. I, I, I agree with with your analysis with that. Well, I, I, I think that's very astute. I think obviously, since I run a Catholic worker farm, as well as being like a, you know, communio theologian and blogger, I'm, I'm very much on board with your notion of the corruptions of money, corruptions of mammon. I'm reminded of a great book that came out like three or four years ago now by Eugene McCarraher at Villanova University called, it's called The Enchantments of Mammon. And uh, it's essentially written as a, as a book against the disenchantment thesis of Max Weber and other sociologists in the early 20th century who claimed that secularism and the rise of modernity represented essentially a disenchantment of the world, uh, the demystification of the world. And, and McCarraher said, well, that's, that's true in one sense. There's, you know, there, there's a disenchantment of the, of the strong, of the higher gods of Christianity uh, and so on. But, it, but human beings being religiously, incorrigibly religious animals, we're going to worship something. And McCarricker then goes through this whole history, points out what we worship is money. <laughs> so we're not a disenchanted culture at all. We're highly enchanted. And our enchantment is a really bad enchantment called mammon. And uh, obviously, he's very negative about it. Uh, and so that I like the fact that you tie certain developments within the church to this corruption of mammon. So I was wondering... Let's see, what time is it? Okay, we've been going about 50 minutes. We can go, for if you have time, we can go a little sure. longer. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, it took us long enough to get this interview. So come on, let's not be parsimonious <laughs> here, time-wise. So um, what? let's talk a little bit about then the development of doctrine. And uh, I, I think you mentioned in your introduction that you kind of tie notions of development of doctrine into, into your thesis here. Uh, obviously, the church has taught some things from the past, uh, you know, like Pope Leo and Exerge Domine, that, you know, it's okay to burn heretics at the stake and so on. And we mentioned slavery. It seems to me, I'm kind of ignorant on the topic, to be perfectly honest with you. But the little that I've read on the topic seems to me that the church's magisterium was kind of all over the map in terms of slavery, not slavery, it's okay tolerated, not okay. So in other words, 
let's use some of these issues as a kind of springboard to, to, to sort of define what is creative fidelity? What is this Greek and Roman dynamic as we look at the development of doctrine? Yeah. Um, and this is, yeah, this is a complicated subject, especially yeah. with these explosive topics that are contained in the book. But I would say the what I what I argue in the book is that there are the there is this creative tension between these two parties that we've already identified. But the key is that there is a dialogos between them. There's a dialogos which joins them together so that neither one of them goes too far, but they create this synthesis against the heretics, which is ultimately a a continuation of logos because it is not only manifesting logos incarnate but it is manifesting logos incarnate according to logos itself according to the ordering of the thing itself so that it is new and old at the same time um the key point in the arian crisis that i say is because there was homoousios there was the doctrine of nicaea promulgated but after that there was a massive crisis with all sorts of different orient Aryan groups, but there was also a anti-Nicene party, which was Orthodox because they objected. They were the Roman instinct. They objected to the fact that there was this new thing happening. And St. Athanasius shows his magnanimity in 362 under Julian the Apostate. Ultimately, all these different manifestations of Arianism have run their course and God sends his wrath in the form of Julian the Apostate, which renews the pagan persecution. And St. Athanasius, because he's such a great saint, he says, well, I'm going to take the opportunity to have this dialogos where we're going to join forces with this Nicene party. We're going to win them over because by dialogos, meaning I'm going to talk to you as a brother, and I'm going to actually cut through the superficiality of the terminologies that we're using and find out what the substance really is. And you can only do that through a true dialogos. And what he does is he wins over this anti-Nicene party to the homoousias, to Nicaea, which ultimately results in the victory of Nicaea at, right. and especially at the 381. But this is what helps to understand the breakdown of the other Greek schisms in the, after the council of Ephesus and Chalcedon, and as and also with the fifth ecumenical council where there there are these different greek parties which are battling over terminology some of them are are fighting only for terminology but some of them are actually heretics and so we got to have to actually distinguish between who's who here but what yeah. happens is there's such a bitterness such an immense bitterness that results that 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 dialogos breaks down that whole structure that is necessary to create that synthesis it breaks down and christopher dawson says uh the the invasion of islam is the wrath of god for for this this breakdown of christendom right here it's it's the wrath of god god gave them over to a foreign party just like just like he did in in the old testament um yeah because there is not this the that that roman instinct and the greek instinct working together so that there can be a, a truth synthesis, a true dialogos, which gets through that. So I, I, it works in the particular case, whatever it is. Uh, what does that actually look like? It depends on this dialogos. Um, but 
it takes a different form in in the second in the second Greco-Roman renewal, which is really a a synthesis between the Augustinians, like the Franciscans, like Saint Bonaventure, who are retaining what came before, and then you have the innovator is Saint Thomas Aquinas. Yeah, so he wants yeah. to bring in Aristotle, and he wants to put put Aristotle to bear on Christendom, and that's really controversial. Wow, pagan philosopher, what are you doing with that guy? <laughs> but because he he's a synthesizer, and because there's this there is this uh, dynamic, there's this truly um, synthesizing dialogos between these Orthodox parties, and there is a Roman magisterium who is making sure nobody goes outside the bounds of Orthodoxy. That's how we have the greatness of what I call first Christendom, not the Middle Ages. The Middle Ages is a is a Marxist term itself, not Marxist per se, but it's an anti-Christian term. We shouldn't use Middle Ages. That was invented by the enemies of Christ. Yeah. We should use Christendom or first Christendom, or I call first Western Christendom, because there's other Christendoms. And that's what the glory of, of this period is, because, and that's happening not even in a massive heretical crisis at, at in those years, 1100s, 1200s, 1300s. And that's what builds the, the greatness of Western Christendom, is this true dialogos between these different parties who are just sort of, they're sort of competing with one another for the glory of God. It's like when when St. Bonaventure and St. Thomas Aquinas appear before the Pope and they've both written a Eucharistic hymn and St. Bonaventure hears, you know, they're these bitter rivals, you know, who, who bitterly disagree with each other. And yet St. Bonaventure, when he hears the Eucharistic hymn of St. Thomas Aquinas, he rips up his own and he says, <laughs> yours is better. Glory to God. Like that's that's the that's the true spirit of this true dynamic of, of competing for the greater glory of God. That's fantastic, and I and and that that I think that is uh, a, a great story about about Bonaventure and Aquinas, uh, and I and I think though I mean, it, it it goes to show that any true development of doctrine has got to have that spirit of ecclesial sacrifice within it, ecclesial devotion within it. It can uh, development of doctrine cannot be animated by external ideological forces and factors, uh, which which are almost always just greatly, greatly distorting influences. I mean, all that said, all that said, uh, there, there, there is a sense in which I think we have not yet fully come to terms, come to grips with, uh, with what, at least for a lot of people, I think a Newman dealt with it, Blondel dealt with it, Vincent Leblerin dealt with it way, way, way back when. But a lot of average Catholics today seem to be of the opinion that there is either a strict material continuity in all doctrines in the history of the church, and that all discontinuities can be simply explained away, or there is a wicked massive rupture everywhere, which legitimates all kinds of either schism or liberal theological dissent. And of course, then you've got Pope Benedict talking about a hermeneutic of reform in his criteria for determining development of doctrine, that there's going to be little micro ruptures or discontinuities in the service of a deeper continuity and so on. Uh, and, and it just really confuses a lot of people, right? Uh, then what then, so in other words, do you subscribe basically to Cardinal Newman's concept of development of doctrine, or do you subscribe to some, to some other version? I mean, I would say that he's he's getting at a substantial truth thereof. Um, yeah. But I, I mean, I think the fundamental what I would assert in this in this text 
is that the fundamentals of Christian culture are these four elements from Dawson and that the doctrinal development has the, the main, I mean, one of the main factors, I guess I would call it is that the, that there needs to be this generative, generative continuity. That's the main continuity is that it has to go slow enough so that the average, the general 25 years of a generation growing from zero age zero to age 25 and creating a new family and passing it down then is that it cannot rupture that whole process. It has to go slow enough so that that whole process is continuous. There's no disruption of the entire cultural framework so that that doctrinal development can happen. But nowadays we have, we have international business targeting children and they're targeting children which takes them out of that whole generative process and what we talked about before about the liturgists they're imitating that whole pattern because they're targeting the children they're saying oh we're gonna touch this new generation who's 10 years old 15 years old or you know the youth we're gonna touch we're gonna reach the youth but you've already disconnected the whole cultural paradigm paradigm by doing that because you have to reach father and son and grandfather you have to have all three of those together and that's how you enter into that doctrinal development so i would say newman is getting at this from a a theological perspective and he's you know i think there's a substantial truth to that um but where do where does the real test yeah i mean where does the rubber meet the road with that uh i would say it 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 meets the road can it maintain that generative continuity so that it can yeah. really truly develop? Because that's the only, I mean, that, um, you know, the, uh, this is what is um, the youth, the youth rise up and they add a new zeal to the wisdom of our fathers. Our fathers pass down the wisdom and the youth add a new zeal to that wisdom. And that's, I mean, that, I would summarize doctrinal development like right there. Uh, there's a new zeal to the same wisdom and it comes from the youth, but the youth, as, as um, the prophet says, I will turn the hearts of their fathers to their children and the children to their fathers. That's the true doctrinal development. So if, and only if that can be happen, um, I mean, there's a disconnect. One of the things about Vatican II, which is unfortunate is that I think that there was a great disconnect between lots of theologians, even good theologians who have good theological ideas, who are creating a good, doctrinal development in theory they may be disconnected from the reality of the parishioners on the ground and what they're experiencing and how would that you know for example i think religious real liberty is a perfect example the the term religious freedom we could we could create a doctrinal orthodoxy we can we can create a box where that's doctrinally orthodox among the theologians but the reality is that we have a worldwide american psychological manipulation of that term for the ends of politics and so yeah. the, the the people on the on the ground they have an understanding of what that means based on the american uh, cia propaganda not according to what theologians have cooked up and even that if that's good uh and so that's that's w- another disconnect um so i i think yeah. that that was i that I, I, I think that's very true i mean if you read great big thick book put out by David L. Schindler before he died and in conjunction with Nicholas Healy, a theologian at the JP2 Institute in Washington. And it was a big thick book about Dignitatis Humanae from Vatican II. 
And it was essentially an attempt to show that you can really develop a perfectly organic and orthodox understanding of Dignitatis Humanae's understanding of religious freedom, that it doesn't entail an American-style separation of church and state or a French secularizing laicite against, against clericalism, that if you look at the schemata as they flowed through the council, and this book gives you all the various different documents as they evolve, you see the influence of the French and Polish bishops, Wojtyla included, and that they wanted to root this innovation in a, a properly traditional framework, all that stuff, that's all great. So you're right. Dignitatis Humanae can be read in a perfectly con contiguous, orthodox way and so on. But that's not how it was read. I mean, when it gets when it hits the road on a popular level, all that gets translated in the popular media in the Western world is the Catholic Church has now embraced separation of church and state, period, end of discussion. And so now you end up with a Catholic president, a so-called Catholic president who invokes who invokes Vatican II and the separation of, you know, church and state and religious freedom as a justification for abortion, for crying out loud. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a problem. And no less a light than Joseph Ratzinger, Pope Benedict, recognizes the same thing. I don't remember where he said this. I, it was in an interview where he, he said, point blank, the problem with Vatican II is that we were so intent on getting the theology right that we forgot how it would be perceived on a pastoral level. Yeah, it's in Last Testament with Peter Zavold. Yeah, exactly. He he's, he's like he says we did it's something like that. He, he said we we did the right thing, but we didn't realize how these things would come across. We didn't realize the political implications. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's uh, yeah. Yeah, the the, the Zavold, yeah, that is where I read that. Uh and it, he even acknowledged uh I think it was in the same Zavold text. I think he was at a, a meeting of a of communio uh, editorial board, international meeting of all the various editorial boards, where he said something similar about let's let's be aware as communio style theologians that we're not simply talking. And so I'm paraphrasing, but that we're not simply talking to ourselves in a closed circle of theologians. We have to be constantly aware of what's going on out there in the church right now on a pastoral level. And, and perhaps to a certain extent, all of us theologian types have been guilty uh, of that as we as we talk to each other. You know, it's probably it's probably a, 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 an epidemic sin amongst most academics that they end up talking to people within their own guild, regardless of the discipline. And sadly, I think theologians fell into that as well. But anyway, OK, we've been talking now for about an hour and 40 minutes um, I'm trying to think of, there was something popped into my head. I meant to write it down and now I forgot, but anyway, um, let's, let's talk before, before we get out of here, uh, where do we go from here? What, what, what do we do now, Timothy? What, what's, what's important? What's on your radar? Well, uh, I mean, I don't interrupt. I mean, but you run yeah. one Peter five, which started yeah. by Steve Skojek. Yeah. I mean, it's a sort of place where trads like to Real, get really pugilistic and out there, but in a good way. Uh, so obviously you believe in some form of traditionalism and, and so on. But anyway, so go ahead. Yeah. yeah. Where do we go from here? Well, that's, that's the subject of my final chapter uh, in my book. And one, I think we've, we've already discussed this is that the theologians need to work on this thing, synthesis. They need to put aside the animosity that they have felt or that they've been taught 
regarding that other Orthodox party. And I'm thinking in particular, the um, the recent text that was published by Matthew Minard and John Kerwin called A Dialogue Delayed, which is all about this sort of the, the dialogue that failed right before Vatican II between the the Roman Dominicans and other Dominicans with the uh, resourcement thinkers in France. Yeah. Um, and the so the theologians, as far as they're concerned, they need to uh, overcome that animosity and begin to interact in a, a, a true dialogos with sort of this other party understanding and this is already as again this is already happening under this own uh, this pontificate because under this pontificate there are people who are attacking both uh they're i mean they're attacking archbishop lefebvre and john paul ii and pope benedict yeah and the latin mass you know they're they're just taking everything out and it realized everyone's kind of realizing wow we all need to fight together to a degree on all these basic points of doctrine uh so that's as regards to the theologians uh, and as regards to Christian families. So, I mean, part of this book is, is it doubles as a, a homeschool textbook, uh, or a high school textbook um, so that Christian families can, they can learn their history because this book also upends many of the anti-Catholic myths of history, but it also pres- provides a challenge for a high school young man or young woman to uh, to confront these crises of this day and to have a, a much more sound opinion to uh, confront these things but then either either they'll they'll go into the priesthood and then they'll join the theologians in this whole epic dialogue or they'll they'll become christian mothers and christian fathers and they will pass down this history and so so the idea is of this book is to help lay people also get out of their ideological historical paradigms so that they are truly uh, embracing their Catholicity and their communion with fellow Catholics who are Orthodox, even if they're in different parties and different whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But and as we touched on before the, the traditionalism, the, the, the epicenter, the, the pyramid, the, the, the greatest, aspect of the traditional movement is the preservation of the latin mass the preservation of this ancient rite of rome uh so because only and we can quote cardinal ratzker cardinal Seurat, and other more sort of communio thinkers to say the same thing that we have to have this this central cultus for everything else to work together and that's preserved by lay people fighting for what I would term their rights as or the rights of their children, perhaps of their, of their inheritance of the Roman right, the ancient Roman right. Um, and only if that is preserved, if, and only if that is preserved, then we can talk about reforms and, and liturgical things like that, but we have to have that very thing. But Cardinal Rassiger points out that the enemies of Christ were embarrassed in the face of the Protestants, they're embarrassed about the dogmas of Trent. They wanted to become Lutherans. That's why they hated the Latin Mass. That's why they they're they're so bitter to to take away the Latin Mass is because they 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 want to say that the Mass really isn't a sacrifice. Luther was right on that. Actually, let's just let's just do away with the Latin Mass and create a brand new day. Um. So there's a weaponization of the Novus Ordo against the Council of Trent. 
So where do we go from here is, is the, what I'm trying to get at is that uh, this book, it, it doubles as, as the Catholic uh, transmission of culture in the domestic church, in the parish schools to raise up that next generation. So if you're a theologian, get going on this epic dialogue or everybody, the rest of the rest of us, let's get going on passing down the faith to our, the next generation and breaking out of these ideological uh, uh, barriers. And yeah. uh, if you're a priest or bishop, we ask you to uh, help help this and, and and be a shepherd and and uh, fight against the wolves. And uh, protect and I I, I agree. I I mean I lately I my hobby horse has been education. I think uh, even average lay people, if they truly are interested in passing on the faith to their kids, they have to become better educated in the faith themselves. And that becomes means become better educated in the history of the church, the history of theology, these things. And there are books out there that, that can help them, like your book now, can help them do this. I also think of like a book I was reading not too long ago by Tom Holland uh, called Dominion. I don't know if you've seen this book. It's, it's a kind of popular sort of uh, history. Uh, I don't know how it compares to yours. Uh, and and, and it's, it's things like that, I think the average layperson needs to do far more reading of these kinds of materials. Avail yourselves of YouTube videos like this. Avail yourselves of various other. There's just so much stuff out there now that you can access for free even uh, to, to educate us. But you're not because you're not going to pass the faith on simply through uh, little acts of piety. You've got to have an intellectual content as well to your faith. And so I really think it's imperative that lay people become a little sort of armchair thinkers. I don't want to say necessarily theologians, but armchair thinkers about, about deep, about deep matters. And people are capable. Average people are capable of thinking theologically of thinking about deeper, deeper matters. And so, yeah, I, I agree with you in order, in order to pass this cultus on, we need, we need people to be educated about it. You and I might disagree or not, I don't know, about whether or not what needs to be passed on is just the old Latin mass, say pre-1955, the old Latin mass. We just need to resurrect that and 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 move it forward. I don't know. I, I'm not a liturgist. I don't know what, <laughs> what the, I'm not a sociologist. I don't know what kind of a World War Ecclesial three <laughs> would break out. If I, you know, for example, I, I think this is why Pope Benedict never just said, hey, look, here's the deal. The Novus Ordo is scrapped. We're bringing back the old mass. We're putting the band back together. All right. Like the Blues Brothers. I, I, I don't think that Ratzinger felt that that was even remotely possible, for, even as Pope, for him to do, that there would just be this massive, massive revolt. And so you get Samorum Pontificum, which says we're at least going to allow people who want to do it to do it. So which which path forward do you favor? Do you, do you hope that the next and like in your in your tra traditionalist like fantasy world, do you hope that the next pope just comes out and says, OK, we're just going to go back to the old mass. The Novus Mordo Ordo is out. The, the old mass is in. Or do you look for a more gradual cultural change in this regard? I mean, I would say that jettisoning the Novus Ordo and imposing the Latin mass and everyone would be making the same pastoral mistake that Paul VI yes. did when he did the, ver the every opposite of that. Uh, and the reason is because despite its deficiencies per se, the deficiencies that are contained in the text and the rubrics of the Novus Ordo, not just its abuse, despite those things, there are 
places in the world, uh, it, it, you know, and for us in the United States, this may come as a shocker, but there are Novus Ordos celebrated in Korea and China and elsewhere where it has been passed down and there has been an organic culture yeah. Yeah. contained there. This is where and, I was heading with this. So this is yeah, good. Go so ahead. to upset that would isolate and alienate those faithful who have who have maintained that and, and created that culture. So as I said before, um, there would there needs to be a uh, I think Pope Benedict is 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 providing the traditional answer to this in in part by reintroducing because this whole situation to a large degree was created by an innovation. Uh, you know, the elders in in the cultural framework that I'm working with here from Dawson, you have the cultus, the tradition, and the elders and the piety. And the elders' job is to make sure that the tradition is passed down, the cultus is passed down to the next generation. And it's not to reinvent, as as we discussed. Um, but after the Protestant revolt, we have what I call in the book second iconoclasm of the Protestants everywhere. And so the Pope, Pope Pius V, found it necessary to desperate times call for desperate measures, where the Pope took it upon himself to suppress all rights which were 200 years old uh, or newer and impose more or less the the Roman right. Right. But he gave a lot of op local options and, and local veneration of antiquity and a antique rights. And that's really the, the traditional answer <laughs> is what we should try to be seeking is restoring that the local organic cultural right which is uh, which is a dynamic process between the lay order, who is the nobleman <laughs> ruling the, the the fiefdom and the bishop. And because the lay order pays for the church and wrecks the monuments and, and does all these things and the clerics celebrate the liturgy. Um, but I mean, I would I would say that it's I mean, I have I mean, in my trad fantasy world, I would say. Um, I, I heard that the initial motor proprio that was under John Paul II, I heard this, I don't know if this is true or not, but I heard that the original version of Samorum Pontificum required every cathedral to have the Latin mass. So that every cathedral was required to have the, at least one Latin mass every weekend, but then they could also have these other things. Um, and in my trad fantasy world, I would be seeking the, the pre-Tridentine local bishop subsidiarity uh truly cultural liturgical reality yeah yeah which would have a, a vast diversity of rites which were all very traditional not like we have in the suburban right novus Ordo world where every community is totally different because but yeah. they're also sort of the same you know it's like oh they're all the same yeah. actually uh but it is a truly organic but how do you get there i i i mean i think it, it is i mean the number one thing the first step is allowing the Latin mass. And I would even require it at every cathedral. Every cathedral has to have one Latin mass. Okay. And that creates the standard then. Um, but then I would also say that one of the things, one of the most conspicuous things for uh, these faithful <laughs> who are worship have been worshiping at the Novus Ordo for some decades or a few generations now is the vernacular is praying and, and worshiping and, and hearing things that they understand at least a lot more. And so 
why not introduce, why not draw upon the Anglican ordinary tradition? And uh, that's me. I of, attend. I do attend. <laughs> there an we Anglican go. Ordinary why church? not draw yeah. upon a, a oh. sacral English, a sacral English and Elizabethan English? Yeah. There's a, there's a whole there's a century centuries old tradition of polyphony in English. Why not draw upon that? Because and we do it. The lingua franca of the world very much is English to a great degree. So using more English as well, the sacred English, not the 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 vulgar English, uh, not yeah. not using you, but these and thous, um, using that to create a more organic development of the liturgy. But it, it's unfortunately it, it's so difficult to do something like this because of this revolutionary period we're in. Um, the unfortunate the negligence of many bishops or the even bishops who want to actually promote this sort of liturgical deformation and iconoclasm. So it's a very difficult thing. I mean, I think yeah. ultimately we need to, like, like I say, in, sort of this in this book, this is a homeschool textbook or this is a high school textbook. This is, it starts yeah. with the domestic church. You, you handle your domestic church and then you focus on your parish. That's all we, most of us can really worry about and should worry about. Is just our domestic church and our parish, and creating that parish culture, which is truly, uh, you know, that, that true liturgical culture, pious Catholic culture, and that's yeah. what out of that is uh, out of that is where the saints arise. The saints arise out of that, and the saints will then bring us to. I agree. Third Christendom. <laughs> it is. It is ironic, right? That in this supposedly uh, wonderful new world of a synodal church of the peripheries and dialogue and so on. Uh, that, uh, you know, the church supposedly have let a thousand flowers bloom. We're being told that the liturgy can be only one singular, the only kind, this kind. And even within that kind, any kind of an attempt to make it slightly more traditional, bishops are saying no, no to altar rails, no to ad orientum, none of that stuff. You can't do any of that. Uh, so there's being imposed from above this monolithic homogeneity that is quite foreign, as you point out, to sort of the history, even under Pius V, he allowed for certain antique rites and so on. And as someone who attends an Anglican ordinary at church myself, you know, I'm a cradle Catholic, but I attend this church. I agree with you completely. It's, it's uh, I mean, it's ad orientum. It's receiving communion at an altar rail while kneeling on the tongue, tons of incense, tons of polyphony, lots of chant, <coughs> an elevated kind of English the restoration of things like ember days and all this kind of thing. Uh, it, it's just breathtakingly beautiful. And, you know, we could take steps like that too. Um, I live in fear that that's the next shoe to drop under this papacy that, you know, the Anglican ordinariate will now be suppressed or something. But I think it's such a small, small thing in the church right now that it doesn't pose much of a threat. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Uh, we should probably, we've been now at this about an hour and a half. We should probably bring this to a close. We can always do another conversation in the future, Certainly. Timothy. I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. It's been fantastic. I urge everybody, everybody. Do you have a copy of your book there that you can hold up? Oh, uh, yeah. Yep. City of God versus City of Man. I think it's reversed in my video. but It's uh... reversed for you, but it came through for us. Oh, okay, good. So uh, I urge all of my viewers and listeners to get uh, Timothy Flanders' new book, City of God versus City of Man, uh, and also my book, Confessions of a Catholic Worker, because it's, it, it hits some strikingly similar themes based on what you've said here today. Uh, some, I don't go through a whole history like you do. 
Yeah, but still very, very similar themes. Do you have any last words, Timothy, that you want to offer to the audience before we sign off here? Yeah, ultimately, this is this is part of our lay apostolate called Meaning of Catholic. And Meaning of Catholic is a lay apostolate, which is seeking to promote this very thing that I described, namely restoring yeah. the, the true rival schools of Christendom, where there can be a true dialogos, which is not merely a dialogue where we are kumbaya about nothing. It's truly a, a subordination to the truth, a penetration of the truth by disparate parties who are all seeking and competing for the greater glory of God. So that's what we promote at Meaning of Catholic. It's meaningofcatholic.com. I like that. Let's end with that. We're certainly not about a kumbaya of nothing, uh, that, we're, that we want to promote the substance of the faith. And as a, a communio theologian, I certainly agree with that. And so I, I, I thank you for writing a book. Uh, that reaches across the aisle and for coming on the show today. So thanks everybody for uh, joining us today. And once again, uh, get uh, Timothy Flanders new book, city of God versus city of man. I think uh, I haven't read it myself, but now I'm going to order it. I think it sounds great. So thanks a lot for being on the show today, Timothy. Thanks for everybody for listening. <laughs>